Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Chodosh. And I'm Corinne Iosio. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we each give a little teaser for a fact or Wikipedia spiral or Twitter thread that we came across over the course of reporting and otherwise living our best dang lives over the last week or so. And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about right away. Once we've all had a turn to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and vote on what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And as always, if you have strong opinions about which story was the best, we would love to hear about it on Twitter at weirdest underscore thing. Corinne, since it's your first time on the show, why don't you uh, give us your teaser first? So this is something I've been holding on to for a while, but it's a turn of the 20th century condiment war. Mm, a war. Intriguing. It's I tasty. It's tasty. (laughs) Or Uh, is it? Maybe that's the war. You need to find out. Oh, God. She's so good at teasers. We shouldn't have invited her on. (laughs) So, Sarah, what's yours? Uh, My fact is that 73% of Americans say that they remember watching the first plane hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center live on 9-11, even though that footage did not actually air until later the next day. Interesting. It's a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's not as happy as condiments, but it is interesting. All right. My teaser is that there was a time when scientists thought that living things existed curled up, fully formed in teeny tiny, inside sperm. Little homunculi. Mm Mm-hmm. Just little men inside the sperm. Little dudes. Or eggs. There was a big debate. This one is a war, too. Uh-oh. God. It's a battle battle. <laughs> oh, God. Mm, 
I think I want to hear about condiments first. Yeah, same. Okay. Like I said, this is a fact that I've been holding on to for a while. I play in a regular trivia game on Wednesdays. About a year ago, one of the hosts posed a question to us that was a description from a USDA white paper, and we had to tell him what the clue was describing. Mm. And it turned out that he had pulled a piece of information from a very extensive set of documents that lay out the methods and mechanisms by which you distinguish grade A ketchup, the artist formerly known as fancy ketchup, (laughs) grade B ketchup, grade C ketchup, and substandard ketchup. Oh, God. Wow. (laughs) Substandard ketchup. It's such an indictment. (laughs) It really is. So I started going down the rabbit hole of what exactly goes into making these determinations about different kinds of ketchup. Everything gets assessed out of 100 points, and the scores are broken down evenly between color, consistency, absence of defects, and flavor. So grade A ketchup has a minimum score of 85 points out of 100 based on those four factors, but also has a minimum of one-third or 33% total solids in the mixture. I just have to point out that I am tickled about their assessment of flavor because flavor obviously is an extremely subjective thing and they get a little bit philosophical in their guidance to people about how they assess the flavor of ketchup. Quote, first impressions are often the best impressions. (laughs) Repeated taste (laughs) testing for flavor may not be as reliable as initial impression. Wow. So taste your ketchup once. Never again. The second time you taste it, it will be, Mm -hmm. wow. So grade A ketchup has a very clean flavor. They say it has a nice smooth finish, which is that it doesn't have any kind of metallic aftertastes and things like that. Um, Bad flavor tastes scorch or bitter or overly astringent. And I should say that if you get a low score in flavor, you get downgraded immediately. If you get low scores in flavor, low scores in consistency, you get downgraded immediately. You cannot possibly be the grade A fancy ketchup. They will not allow it. It's like (laughs) flunking the parallel parking on your driver's (laughs) test. Like, sorry, it's not going to work out for you. What tickles me the most about all of this are the measurements of consistency, which they use a tool called a Bostwick consistometer. Mm. Whoa. And you can really just add ometer to any word, huh? (laughs) You sure can. What a Bostwick consistometer is, is a tiny little ramp with centimeter marks on it. And what you do... do, Oh my God, sorry. I won't interrupt. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm so so excited. (laughs) So you take your ketchup sample or whatever thing you're trying to establish the consistency of, and you put a little bit of it in a trapped well at the top, and then you lift a little door, and you start a stopwatch for 30 seconds, and you see how far the ketchup moves down this ramp. This is incredible. In 30 seconds. <laughs> this is incredible, and I'm pretty sure that they also used to do this in laboratory tests for phlegm taken <laughs> from patients' lungs, which I know because my grandfather was like a, he did research on phlegm, and my father was an intern in that lab, and he watched phlegm roll down tiny little ramps to see how viscous it was. Yep. Wow. Yeah. A so, little ketchup door. Like watching mm, the a- phlegm roll down. <laughs> So is there a proper viscosity? There is a proper viscosity. Grade A and B will move between three and seven centimeters Mm. per in 30 seconds. So that's fancy ketchup and U.S. standard ketchup. Hold on. 
because they got rid of the actual standard. like nomenclature. So it's fancy, extra standard, standard, and substandard, or the <laughs> extra terms. standard. Extra standard. That just sounds like that's that's nonsense. That's like extra average. Well, so these are from the 1953 documentation in the 1991-92 documentation, which is what we current ketchup standards are. We don't have these words. It's just A, B, C, and fail. Yeah, because they tragic. were tragic. There's no more fancy ketchup. Well, there is fancy ketchup, it's just not but you just fancy. can only call it that in your heart. Mm. And I do. <laughs> Grade C ketchup will slide further. It'll go up to 10 centimeters, but also if it goes less than two centimeters, that is also bad. That is too firm of a ketchup. <laughs> So this isn't even where I went down the rabbit hole. I went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out who the heck actually established what the proper consistency of ketchup should be. Like, could this be based on anything? And that is how I came upon the great condiment war. Something called the Pure Food Act was passed in 1906, and the big push behind this was a guy named Harvey Wiley, who was the commissioner of the FDA and would later go on to work at places like the Good Housekeeping Institute. Mm -hmm. And his beef was about a preservative that was in ketchup, but a bunch of other stuff, but mainly ketchup because we're Americans and we eat a lot of ketchup. (laughs) So he had a problem with a preservative called sodium benzoate, Mm -hmm. which is still in food now. Right. Um, But he did his own independent studies where he had 10 people and over the course of a month gave them increasingly higher and higher levels of sodium benzoate. And a lot of these people got really intestinally violently ill. However, the amount that he was giving them, I I couldn't quite figure out the math, but it seemed like gallons of ketchup a day. Yum. Yep. (laughs) So, and at the time, it was sort of this jockeying back and forth of, should we have this, shouldn't we have this? There was ketchup people on one side saying we need it for shelf stability and we're never going to be able to move anything and then the the regulatory bodies saying but it's bad for you and these are chemicals and this is terrible and all of our food food should be pure this all sounds extremely familiar to modern <laughs> life wiley got a ketchup manufacturer on his side a guy named charles loudon and charles loudon started working with chemists at the fda to do a study of all different kinds of ketchup to figure out if the sodium benzoate was safe and if it was possible to create preservative-free ketchup despite what big ketchup was telling everyone. (laughs) And all the while this is happening, there's a couple named Avril and Catherine Bidding, and they are doing this exhaustive study to try to figure out what the best way to preserve ketchup is. They tested in their home and their laboratory 1,600 different bottles of ketchup. Oh, my God. Yes. What a How couple. were there even <laughs> that many? Like, Ketchup was—there were hundreds of independent companies producing ketchup around the turn of the 20th century. Ketchup wow. was big, big business before, you know, ketchup consolidation or whatever evil term you big would want to use for it. Big took ketchup. over. Yes. What they found was upping the vinegar content— and the sugar content slightly was just as, if not more effective than the chemical preservative. Heinz bought into this. They adjusted their recipe. A bunch of other people eventually started to do the same. And the other thing that they discovered was that the consistency of the ketchup was also somehow related 
to its shelf life. But the consistency that they found was somewhere in the neighborhood of what we have now. And this started to inform a lot of the the recipes or solidify the recipes, the preservative-free recipes that people were already using. So the Heinz ketchup recipe that's on shelves now has no preservatives in it. It just has a slightly higher proportion of vinegar and sugar. Hmm. That's smart. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we, we pickle things so that you can, yeah. so that they are preserved. Hmm. Wow. But anyway, there's, yeah, and there's still sodium benzoate in things. It's one-tenth of one percent by volume is what's allowed. It's in soft drinks and juices. And again, you would have to consume a tremendous amount of any of it for it to be a worry. But we have ketchup because <laughs> Thank of it. God. Thank everything that is holy. Mm. I love ketchup. Did you know that ketchup is a non-Newtonian fluid? And that that is why it is so difficult to get, like when you have one of those glass jars of ketchup and you bang on the bottom and then all of a sudden it all comes out? It's because it's a non-Newtonian fluid. Wow. I love food definitions. There, it's, it's really incredible because we will quantify anything. <laughs> I found a <laughs> definition for condiment better. in my favorite paper, The Psychology of Condiments. Do you want to hear what it is and we'll decide I, whether or not... I've never heard of this paper. You've I never really know. I know. Sure. It's totally new information. Um, shout out to Teresa, though, who uh, I saw on Twitter went and actually looked up the psychology of condiments after I mentioned it the first time. I'm just so happy to spread the gospel of the psychology <laughs> of condiments. Oh, God. Thank you, Teresa. Love you. Okay. I'm curious what you guys think of this this condiment definition. It says, as its etymology suggests, a condiment must have a shelf life, which mm-hmm. until recently means it was vinegar, salt, or sugar-based. Also, it must be at least slightly more complicated and moister than a seasoning. <laughs> so you cannot sprinkle a condiment, but you can sprinkle a seasoning. Right. So, so does that mean sprinkles are a seasoning? I would argue that sprinkles are not a seasoning because they do not add flavor. They add texture. Mm. I think seasoning has to have flavor. I just love that it has to be more complicated and (laughs) moister. And I think that makes sense. I agree with his definition of condiment. We could could get into something pretty hairy doing like a Venn diagram of condiments and sauces. Like relish is a condiment, but not a sauce. Oh, there is relish guidance in the pickle documentation. It's amazing. (laughs) Wow. Do you have anything for us about pickles? Oh, do I ever have something? Are there fancy pickles? So there are midget pickles, which I did not know. It is. Do they still call it that? They do. Wow. This is the current pickle grades and standards guidance. (laughs) Wow. Three quarters of an inch or smaller. Smaller than a baby gherkin. Smaller than a baby gherkin. (laughs) I'm not sure why that's such a funny sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Faster than a speeding bullet. Smaller than a baby gherkin. Oh, my God. Oh, but there's oh also within there, right? So there's all kinds of things naturally, similarly to ketchup. There are things that can get you immediately downgraded in terms of pickles. And one of them is too much bend in a pickle. And I submit to the group this picture of a, a bendy pickle. Hit the angle. Listeners, from, it is a very bendy pickle. <laughs> the angle from the closest right angle is 60 degrees or more, which is a no-no. It has to be under that 60. That pickle's got some bend. You can see these sad bendy pickles for yourself on popside.com. <laughs> They're adorable. That top one looks a little bit like a pepper. Hmm. A pickled pepper? <laughs> oh, God. I think we have exhausted all of the condiment knowledge that we can. So far from that, but with, we're just... <laughs> without we have to limit Sarah it. and Corinne... Literally reading both of their favorite condiment papers <laughs> word for word. I'm going to go look up the white papers. I'm so excited. So we're going to take a quick break. 
and then we'll be back with more weird facts. Okay, pals, you love the weirdest thing I learned this week podcast, and now you can love it as a Facebook group. Share your strangest facts and read all about the offbeat and outlandish findings of other science lovers. We'll also be publishing some of the bonus info and ramblings that didn't make it into the final cut of the podcast. Just search for The Weirdest Thing on Facebook. Okay, you guys should definitely join the Facebook group because I have to say the weird facts in there are weird. It is as advertised. We are loving it. Please join and be weirdos with us. It, it is so good. I, it has brightened my whole Facebook news feed, which is just mostly garbage. And then I scroll past <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And it's always from that group. Amazing. Please join us. It will it will brighten your news feed too. Speaking of brightening our days, <laughs> I think Sarah, Sarah has a fact that has to do with uh, repressed memory and 9-11. And I-, I promise this is going to get happier and more interesting. Um, so my fact is that 73% of Americans have like a very distinct memory of watching the footage of the first plane hit like live. Like I was standing in my kitchen, I was mm-hmm. standing at work and I remember seeing the first plane hit. But that footage did not air on the first day because the only footage of it is I think maybe only from one guy who happened to have a right. video camera handy. Because and there was footage of the second plane, obviously. Exactly. So like and a that's lot when everybody that was live. glued to the TV. Right. Yeah, so yeah. the second plane is actually what everyone is remembering, but there's this really widespread fake memory that everyone mm-hmm. just shares. Using national tragedies is unfortunately a way that these researchers often um, get to do studies because you have a large number of people who are all exposed to the same event at the same time, Mm. and then you can go and follow up. So there were uh, actually a few researchers at NYU who decided they felt like, you know, New York was just um, such a a tragic place to be after 9-11, and they were, the university was mostly shut down, but they were trying to sort of find a way to feel like they were contributing to something, and so since they were memory researchers, they started studying people's memories of 9-11, so they interviewed people just a week after the attacks had happened, and then they followed up a year after that, and then three years after the event to see how much people could remember. So they found that, Mm -hmm. like, the facts of actually what happened that day, mostly people get pretty much right. Um, but people forget their individual circumstances, so like mm. where you were in particular when you saw it or who you were with, um, and especially what you felt like. Like People were only 40% accurate at remembering their own feelings in the moment, which I think is wild. So this is like in line with a lot of studies on implanting memories. Like There's very famous ones about showing people video footage of like a fake... Uh, accident where a car runs, like you see like a red car and it comes up and it knocks down a pedestrian who's in the crosswalk and there's a stop sign and then they stop the video and the scientist asks you like, was there another car passing the red car while it was stopped at the yield sign? And it wasn't a yield sign, but if you say the yield sign, people revise their memory and say that it in fact, it was a yield sign, not a stop sign. Mm -hmm. Um, But they revise the memory because every time you recall a memory, you can edit it a little bit. Um, So the misremembering of 9-11 is probably a result of people talking about where they were. Like it's so common to compare where you were and what you were feeling. And every time you talk about it, you edit it a little bit. And so 
it's very easy to start misremembering. And if someone else who you're with says, oh, I remember watching the first plane hit live. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't remember that. Maybe you even actively thought, I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. But you edit a little bit, and the next time you recall it, it just becomes part of the memory. So instead of a self-fulfilling prophecy, it's a self-fulfilling legacy? Yes. Well done. Thank <laughs> Corinne looks so proud of I'm herself. I'm very proud of myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's like a whole bunch of other studies like this. There's one where people were given four written accounts, three of which were actual memories that they had like submitted, and one of which was a false memory about how they got lost in a mall as a kid. Mm-hmm. And like a third of subjects immediately afterwards said, oh yeah, they remembered getting lost at a mall, even though that was a completely fake thing that they just read about themselves and then totally revised their own memory to say, yes, I was lost at a mall when I was a child. Mm-hmm. This is why like eyewitness testimony is not admissible in a lot of courts anymore. Right. Like 73% of the convictions that I got overturned by the Innocence Project had been based on eyewitness accounts, but it's totally unreliable. Um, and I mean, quite famously, therapists have accidentally given their patients memories of like really traumatic abuse oh in some cases. Are we going to talk about the satanic ritual abuse, moral panic? I think the you're going to talk about it. <laughs> I think you're going to. Tell us more, Rachel. <laughs> Why do I know this? But <laughs> satanic ritual abuse is a, considered a moral panic, like on the order of like the Salem witch trials. Um, and what happened is that in 1980, there was this book called Michelle Remembers, I think it was by uh, Michelle Smith and her husband, who was a psychiatrist of some kind or a psychoanalyst. His name was Lawrence Pazder, and it was a huge hit. And it was supposed to be an autobiography about her coming to remember all of these repressed, traumatic uh, situations she'd been in as a child. And not just that she'd been abused, but that it had been part of like a satanic ritual and that actually there was this huge conspiracy of uh, satanic child abuse going on all around the country. So this book was really popular. It was also kind of like a period in psychotherapy when uh, using hypnosis to treat trauma and to treat just like stuff in general. I remember hearing once about this. um, There was a famous case of like a nurse sometime in the 1980s or 90s who went to see a therapist and they ended up doing hypnosis therapy and convincing her that she had been part of this like satanic ritual abuse. And when you look at the timeline of stuff that she says happened, it does not line up. Like she basically conflated the death of a sibling, a house fire and some other traumatic event as having happened as part of this like cult her parents were in. But all of those things happened before she was born. Like there was a house fire before she was born that she'd heard about later. She'd had a sibling who died before she was born and heard about it later. So it was just verifiably false, but it completely derailed her life. And she like became estranged from her family and her story was very sad. And, but the thing is that it it wasn't just a few cases in the eighties and nineties Uh, largely because of this book, Michelle Remembers, there was this wave of people uh, becoming convinced that this stuff was happening everywhere. So it was a combination of like mass hysteria and uh, psychiatrists using hypnosis. And given how fragile memory is, as you were saying, Sarah, like it stands to reason it is really easy to manipulate when someone is in a suggestible state. And now, you know, we don't use... Uh, 
resurfaced memories in court because there were all of these cases, including like there was a really famous one, the McMartin preschool trial, where um, two people from a preschool were it was like one of the most expensive trials in history. And it was this completely fabricated hysteria about them performing satanic ritual abuse on the children. Um, and like a hundred preschools around the country ended up having similar cases because people were seeing this stuff on the news and wigging out. Um, and of course, child abuse is real and serious and happens in a lot of places. But it was this weird moment where because people were becoming more aware of it and because there were these horrifying stories in the news and because a bunch of psychiatric professionals were really into hypnotizing traumatized people, uh, suddenly it just became this like horrible meme and it didn't die down until the 90s really. And now it's, you know, there have been like a lot of uh, very critical looks at the cases and... Um, books that were written at the time and it was all like totally made up which really freaks me out yeah the fragility of memory is really alarming and I think about it a lot in the context of technology particularly virtual reality because there once you're in this immersive place like you feel like you are present someplace other than where your body physically is you researchers have started to find that you will become apt to remember things that happen in the virtual environment as if they happened in real life. Uh, and early on, uh, they were discovering that this happened with children, but there's some evidence that it's beginning to really happen with adults. There was a study that I read uh, by this one researcher a few years ago where in a virtual environment, he had people walk into the redwood forest and then use a haptic controller and saw down a redwood tree and that experience imprinted on them in such a way that when they were then like browsing the paper products aisle at the supermarket, were more apt to make more ecologically, resourcefully conservative decisions because mm. they, he had imprinted on them feeling terrible about destroying a tree. Whoa. Yeah. That's both terrifying and incredibly helpful. It's very powerful, but I, it, you know, Evil hands. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. On a happier note, um, there's a huge group of people who remember a character on the 90s cartoon Street Sharks that never existed. Yes. I love this story. <laughs> this is such a good story. Uh, hat tip to Jason, our producer, who sent me this article because it's a friend of yours, right? Went to college with him. Um, this is on geek.com, right? On geek.com, Jordan Minor um, wrote just an incredible story about how <laughs> there used to be like a wiki sort of site called TV Tome. And there was a section of it devoted to Street Sharks, which is a 90s cartoon that you almost certainly do not remember because apparently it was terrible. But Jordan just started editing the wiki and adding in just little plot lines featuring a female shark named Roxy and like entire episodes and whole like long plot lines. And then when TV Tome got merged into TV.com in 2005, then it just all that information migrated over and now it was in two locations on the internet. So it has to be true. And then when he revealed like, this is, this is wrong. I made all of this up. People were like, no, this is real. I remember Roxy. I remember these shows. You cannot tell me this is a lie. And it's like, okay, but it is verifiably a lie. So there's this thing on the internet where most people remember the children's book being spelled Berenstein Bears because that's how it was spelled, except apparently now someone's 
tried to retcon it and it's Baron Stane Bears. Yeah. And the joke is that some of us are from a parallel universe where it was Steen. Steen. I, th- I bet things are going really well back there where I come from. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to that I bet it's the world. better place. They I taught me so Steen. much about keeping my room clean, <laughs> listening to my parents. Those Berenstein Bears, not yeah. the Stein, Stein. I don't know. Is it I can't Stein even say it. Stein? I can't how even they, conceive of how you you're supposed to say it. It's S-T-A-I-N instead of E-I-N. Berenstein. So, so basically, can we believe anything we remember? No. No. It's all wrong. Your memory is garbage. There's nothing you can even do about it. That's the worst part. Because there's like no, especially if it's just like your personal memory, you have no way to verify whether it's true or not. Everything you know is a lie. Well, this is sunny. Thanks, yeah. Sarah. That's great. I'm going to think <laughs> next about time, that. Next time, it'll be happier. All right. We'll take another quick break to uh, think about how much of a bummer that story was, Sarah. Thank you. And then we'll be you right back. so welcome. It's Pride Month. Celebrate with our limited edition Science Pride t-shirts featuring a rainbow popular science logo. All profits go to Out in STEM, an organization that empowers the LGBTQ community in science, tech, engineering, and math. Get yours now at popsci.threadless.com and share on social media with hashtag SciPride. That's S-C-I Pride. I'm wearing this SciPride shirt again because it is Pride Month and I am proud. As you should be. Yay. All right. Speaking of pride and hubris, I was a presenter at this event that was a funeral for defunct scientific theories uh, at Caveat, this really cool space in NYC that does science-themed and comedic events. And I gave a eulogy for preformationism, which is the idea that every living thing just exists all teeny tiny inside sperm or eggs. It sounds pretty wild to think that there's little men inside sperms, (laughs) but the way I put it at caveat was that it's like your uncle who sits at the table at Thanksgiving and you're like, all your opinions are bad. It's really embarrassing. But then someone's like, but for the time he's from, he actually is being very progressive. You know, give your uncle some credit. That's how I feel about preformationism. This was in the 1660s and 70s. And and around that time, people were still talking about spontaneous generation. Like literally people thought that if you put a pile of dirty rags in a corner, a mouse would be born of the rags. <laughs> These are like the meats make maggot maggots people. Yes, yeah, exactly. I was just yeah. gonna say. And like rotting meats literally created maggots. That was spontaneous generation. And they had gotten away from thinking everything was spontaneously generated. I mean, they were like clearly humans, you know, must come <laughs> from something better. But simple organisms like maggots, they were they were still talking about spontaneous generation. And even humans, people are talking about um, epigenesis, which sounds a lot like epigenetics, which is obviously a real modern thing. But the idea then was that male and female sexual fluids had to combine to make a person, which not wrong, but they thought they just kind of congealed (laughs) and like Like old like epoxy style, like came together. Like the Terminator. (laughs) Right. Like the Terminator. So they were so ahead of their time. The reason that idea was kind of going out of vogue in the 17th century is that people worried that it required the intervention of a higher power, like some Something had to kazam the sex goop into human flesh. 
<laughs> oh my god, there's such a wonderful like Batman graphic in my head right now. Oh my god. <laughs> and people were rational in that time and they were like, We don't we don't need no stinking higher power to turn our sexual fluids into humans. They can on their own. <laughs> right. But so preformationism was based on some like very logical observations of uh, metamorphosing insects and uh, growing chicken eggs. So basically they were looking at eggs and being like, okay, so there are fully formed living things in here. You can look and see uh, a chick with all of the organs it will have as an adult, just small and not fully grown. Um, so why not humans also? You know, maybe there are eggs inside us. Again, they were not wrong. Uh, so <laughs> close. They were, they were very Almost close. there. And um, so the idea was that when life was created by whatever, that was also up for debate, future generations were all tucked inside each ovum, like Russian nesting doll style. What? So you had your like proto-human and inside her ovaries were the eggs of all her future offspring and inside no. their ovaries. No. Wait, wait, wait. So we have always existed yes. as individual things. We saw the dawn of time from the gonads of our ancestors. Oh my God. The that Big Bang a- was weird. <laughs> <laughs> so again, in, in many ways, like crazy. In other ways, not as wild as other thoughts of the day. And... Um, Preformationism, in many ways, kind of seems a little progressive because it's got like that pro-ovum bent. It's like all those eggs beget life. But unfortunately, that was only because they had literally seen eggs, like observable eggs out in the world that you didn't need microscopes to look at. Uh, At that time, semen was thought to kind of trigger some kind of growth uh, but they they didn't- fertilizer. Right. Any sperm that had been observed- using magnification that was available was thought to be some kind of parasitic worm. Um, It's fair. Also not wrong. I mean, yeah, (laughs) a little bit. If all you can see when you look at this bodily fluid is some vague wriggling, like that seems pretty fair. But then Anton Leeuwenhoek, who uh, was one of the, you know, great fathers of early microscopy, he saw some microbes wriggling around and some human sperm wriggling around. And he was like, yo, these animalcules, which is what he called anything he looked animalcules. at. Animalcules. Anything that moved under his microscope. He's like, these could totally be the delivery system for these preformed humans we've been talking about for the past few decades. Somebody at Caveat came up and was like, sorry, where did he get the semen? And I said, oh, it was almost, almost certainly his own. I tried to track down the answer to this. And unclear, because... There were a couple different things going on. There was this research assistant named Johan Hamm uh, who announced when he arrived at the lab that he had observed tiny living creatures animated due to their tails in a small quantity of semen from a man suffering from gonorrhea. Now, naturally, I think the thought was that they were causing the gonorrhea because there was stuff wriggling in in the semen. Um, And Leeuwenhoek wanted to see for himself Conveniently, the young man had brought the remainder of the semen in a flask, so they were able to observe. Um, but a lot of reports will say that actually the first time Hook looked at semen, it was his own, like taken from his wife after they had sex, which seems, it seems wow. like you could have skipped a step there. Yeah. Uh, unlike, yeah. less scientific than just, you know. Right, but what could possibly be inside a vagina that would 
Right, of course. Oh, there's pre- nothing in there. No, so no. They're, they're just pristine. We're just empty vessels. Yeah. <laughs> that we are. <laughs> I mean, really, the whole concept of spermism as as it pertained to preformationism as opposed to ovism was like, where does life come from? Oh, maybe men just literally shoot it straight out their d- <laughs> That was the theory. <laughs> just men gunning for the uterus. Wow. Tiny men. And so I think that both of these things are true. I think that what happened is that um, Leeuwenhoek looked at Hom's gonorrhea semen and was fascinated. And then when he started writing this up and sending it to various journals uh, and being like, if you are, he literally said like, if you are too disgusted by this, you need not print it. And they were all like, no, this is the most important work we've ever seen. Um, but people wanted to know what healthy semen looked like. And I think then that's when he went and had sex with his wife. Imagine being his wife. Like <laughs> she was just funny. helping, yeah, helping I mean, I the know, science get done. I know you, I know that you want to lie here in bed, but I just need to scrape a little sample. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Can you just move so, a to the left, scoot down. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, preformationism in my eyes really goes downhill after our buddy Anton uh, discovers sperm, and at that point, it's decided that they are clearly the perfect delivery product. They were like, oh, you know what? The one hole in preformationism was thinking that the ladies had to do it. One more thing about preformationism before we talk about. Uh, its demise. Some spermists were like, okay, so if every sperm has a little man in it, what happens to all the little men? Oh no, (laughs) they must die. Um, But panspermism was the idea that maybe sperm from Aaron ejaculations simply scattered onto the wind. (laughs) What? (laughs) Where to, did they to go? seek its fortune and take hold to make life wherever it found a suitable host. So S- what? <laughs> they thought sperm were it's flying like, around in the air. It's like when you go off a dandelion. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> what did they think was happening when the sperm were scattering in the wind that there was like spontaneous conception? Did they think that the sperm... Or do they have other natural things in them, and that's how we have trees and rocks and dogs and I, stuff? See, I think that it would was, be so interesting if just the <laughs> tiny men became like a tree, like an oak tree in the park. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of that, and also I think it was just kind of a like they get a fair shake because okay. like they can go <laughs> they got their chance, they can go off and seek seek better pastures. Oh so you didn't God. you didn't have to worry Feel too bad. much. How did preformationism end? Microscopes got better and cell theory happened. We were able to see cells. With cell theory, we were like, oh, things just, that is how the sex goop congeals to make human (laughs) flesh. (laughs) Because there are cells in there. So it all comes back around RIP preformationism. Wow. Wow. This was an incredible trip. Yeah. I'm really flashing back. Like, I took it at a whole developmental biology class in college. And there are so, so many drawings of just, like, little homunculi hanging out inside I love the little homunculi. Yeah. They're just, like, all curled up in there. Cozy. It's adorable. For tens of thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. Before they spread on the wind. <laughs> I never learned that part. They should teach that in developmental biology. <laughs> it's also, like, in the 21st century, it's, like, hard to know how much people, like, how much stock people put in 
the particular interpretations of preformationism. Like preformationism was definitely widely accepted as fact, but how many people really believed that your uh, the results of your ejaculate were carried off on the wind and became trees. Mm-hmm. All we know is that someone wrote it down, damn it. <laughs> and it's in the record. I hope a lot of people believed it because that's just so Me funny. Too. I think a lot of people probably did believe it. I think yeah. um, men uh, were were quite floored by the discovery of their, the tiny their sex cells, the tiny men inside them. <laughs> I think they felt... <laughs> Felt real psyched about it. The tiny men inside them. <sighs> All right. Well, I think it's it's about time for us to uh, decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week is. I am going to go with uh, Corinne's because that is the thing I knew least about when we started. And now I know a lot about condiment grading. Yeah, I agree. The condiment knowledge was definitely the most interesting. And things I will be able to bring up at dinner parties in the future. And I'm every s- time you have french fries. I'm sorry, are you not going to bring up semen at your next dinner <laughs> well, party? The people I hang out with have already heard about the tiny men no. inside the sperm. Come on. No, Fair. I mean, I was clearly tickled by the condiment thing, but just the, the images conjured by the tiny Russian dolls of existence is, is what's holding a special place in my heart right now. It's all beautiful. I appreciate your votes, but I give mine to Rachel. Thank you. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please tell your friends and please rate and review us on iTunes. You can buy our merch, including limited edition SciPride t-shirts and the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week tote bags at popsci.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share tweet us at weirdest underscore thing thanks for listening weirdos angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small well whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality it can be hard just to know where to start But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.